Salted roads do not a bargain create. You're ice fishing every day if you're a fish right now. Never let a sled ride you. Now is when the falsely brave taunt mosquitoes. Slush is nature's mush. Remember, red nose, cold toes. I've got a snowball with your name on it, Flake Smith. What about a fourth hole in a ski mask for your chin? Don't date yellow snow. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 16th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and what you're listening to now is a podcast about outdoors pursuits, outdoors pursuers, outdoors pursuees, and the outdoors, a place not merely defined by the pursuing that takes place within it. It is now, as all of you listeners with slightly below average to way above average observational skills have certainly noticed, a few days after 2015's only Christmas, which occurred with moderate fanfare on December 25th, a date that has, in some circles, become synonymous with Christmas. And it should be noted that some of the segments in this month's episode were recorded before Christmas, so please take their Christmas wishes in the spirit in which they were intended. Anyway, being the out-of-all-doors women and out-of-all-doors men that I know you listeners to be, I'm certain that you did not let cold weather dissuade you from hanging lights on the outside of your house and erecting various holiday props in your yard, such as a giant inflatable Santa's bag, or a giant inflatable Santa's boots, or a medium-sized plastic Santa's whole fully clothed body. But now Christmas is over, and it's time for all of these things to come down and go back into the seasonal decorations cellar. Or is it? Because this is the tricky part. When do you take down the decorations? To this day, many people still have a hard time answering this question. Some of these people think it's a trick question, that if they answer it wrong, they'll become an object of fun, which is quite different than being fun. Other people know it isn't a trick question, they just don't know the right answer. It's simple ignorance, and this realization causes them to wonder about what else they might not know, which is very unhealthy. And some people think they know the right answer, but they're wrong, but they don't care. They just take their decorations down on the wrong days with no regard for the consequences, and then we all suffer. The truth is that there isn't one specific day that's right for everyone to take down their decorations. It depends on a whole host of factors particular to each person, ranging from family issues to weather conditions to the local political situation. So what I'm here to do today is to give you some specific guidance on days on which you should not take down your Christmas decorations. First of all, don't take your Christmas decorations down in early December of 2016. If you still haven't taken them down by then, you might as well just leave them up. Otherwise, you'll be putting them right back up again as soon as you take them down, maybe even mere seconds apart. Maybe to the point where you're simultaneously taking them down with your right hand and putting them back up again with your left hand. Second, don't take your Christmas decorations down if the weather is so cold that you might freeze solid in your yard, and I'll tell you why. Teenagers will think you're some kind of inflatable Christmas decoration, and they'll shoot you with BB guns in an attempt to pop you as a prank. When the BBs fail to pop you, assuming they do fail to pop you, then the teenagers will come back with more powerful guns to try to pop you with those as a prank. Third, don't take your Christmas decorations down in plain sight of your young children if you've told your children that taking the Christmas decorations down is one of Santa's duties. Fourth, 
don't take your Christmas decorations down on Valentine's Day, because if you do, you might end up in the doghouse. You might end up sleeping on the couch. You might get the silent treatment. Your spouse might get displeased with you. Your spouse might very reasonably question why you've chosen Valentine's Day of all days to take down the Christmas decorations when you've had plenty of other opportunities to do so, and there's really no reason you couldn't wait a little longer if you've already waited this long. Your spouse might decide not to make a big deal out of it, but secretly be somewhat hurt and disappointed that you're going to spend Valentine's Day taking down Christmas decorations instead of doing something together as a couple, not even something fancy, maybe just watching a movie together or something. <laughs> Fifth, don't take your Christmas decorations down on National Take Down Your Christmas Decorations Day. It's a trap. Sixth, don't take your Christmas decorations down on National Leave Your Christmas Decorations Up Day. The serious observers of this holiday are few and far between, but they are fanatical in their devotion to it. Seventh, don't take your Christmas decorations down during the big game, or there's a good chance you'll miss the big play that determines who gets the big win, and you won't be able to intelligently participate in the big discussion about the big game at your company's big water cooler, where someone, probably big, will say to you, well, what did you think about the big play in the big game? And the only thing you'll be able to say is, I became entangled in the Christmas lights, fell off the roof, and would have accidentally hanged myself if I hadn't been able to use my teeth to gnaw through the strand of lights, which was unfortunately still plugged in, so that's why I got so electrocuted. Eighth, don't take your Christmas decorations down in the dark of night when you can't see anything. Otherwise, you may discover with the rising dawn that what you've done is take down everything on your property except for your Christmas decorations, leaving only the barest framework of your house erect from which your Christmas lights still hang. Ninth, don't take your Christmas decorations down once a homeless family has taken up residence in them unless you intend to replace them with even better decorations for the homeless family to live in. And tenth, don't take your Christmas decorations down on days in which your neighbors have run their quiet flag up their flagpole, unless you think you can take the Christmas decorations down without shrieking, I hate Christmas decorations at the heavens this year, which you can't. There, that's done. This is usually where I sort of sum up the intro and transition into the rest of the episode, but I just couldn't be less inspired to write that part right now, and no one can make me. Let's begin, shall we? For those of you who have been worried about the condition of the saint, we did hear from him this month. He sent us this mysterious recording entitled The Vicious Cycle 3. There I lie, on my back, looking skyward. A planet has shattered and is falling to the earth, all of its white stars small, cold, and snow. As I have the earth on my backpack and my legs and hands extended skyward, falling, climbing, descending into this starry ashes, I begin opening my mouth to gobble one by one each of these stars' remnants and ashes. Twitching, they outpace me. I must twist, I must stretch, I must convulse to get as many as possible into my mouth to cool me down and to quench my thirst while all of the animals and people watch. Mm-hmm. 
And now let's check in again with Harrison Blum, out of all doors, amateur birdwatching correspondent. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. I never considered myself much of a survivalist, but here I sit, crouched beneath a proud Canadian evergreen, nestled snugly in my poncho tent, a man both humbled and awed by the vast expanse of wilderness in every direction. I've yet to see a ranger or mountie, but I suspect that's because it's difficult for their search dogs to pick up my scent on account of the snow. I'm careful to sweep my tracks with evergreen limbs, but even when I forget, when I'm lost in a thought, trying to remember the face of that actress I like, the one from the movie where she likes the guy with the hair, the animals seem to cover my tracks for me. Not last week, just outside my tent, I found a parade of paw impressions that rendered my own footprints invisible. Canadian rabbits must be quite large. Their tracks are almost wolf-like in nature. In truth, I'm less concerned about man and beast than I am the cold. I managed to construct some mittens out of my socks, which helped bring some life back to my fingers. The evergreen needles I used as mitten insulation do a good job, but I'd like to find less prickly needles before the next snowfall. To replace my socks, I stuffed leaves and some of the leftover needles into my boots. My lower extremities tend to run a bit hot. Eleanor was always amazed that I could sweat through a new pair of sneakers in one or two wears. The stink suddenly unbearable, even with the closet door shut so I figured it was best to protect the more vulnerable parts of my body. I've also learned that all it takes to start a fire is some kindling and a big lighter. Now I'm not sure how much more fluid I have left, but it should last me through the winter. Although now that I say that, I'm wondering if I've calculated correctly. And now that I say that, I'm wondering at what temperature lighter fluid freezes, and whether Celsius is really colder than Fahrenheit, like I've been told. I wish I was more comfortable living metrically. The American system of measurement just feels more intuitive. I can feel how much a gulp is. And I wouldn't even know how to start calculating the number of footsteps in one liter. I feel as if I'm learning a great deal out here, but also that I'm learning nothing at all. By the time I muscled together a few animal snares, I was so exhausted that I didn't check the traps for days. I've yet to catch anything, but I suppose that comes with the territory, considering I don't really know what kind of bait a fox prefers. I did learn how to tell which way the wind is blowing by wetting my finger, but that if I investigate things for too long, my finger starts to go dead. I'm also finally okay with the brittle plastic sensation of frozen snot in my nose. This may not be a big deal to you, but to Eleanor, if you're listening, that's a hurdle I've now cleared. I've learned that while any and every part of these woods seems infinitely remote, there's a road not 30 minutes that way. I'd tell you which direction I'm pointing, but I'm trying not to divulge the specific location of my tent. I think it's safe to say, however, that once I get to that road, if I walk in one of two directions for another half an hour or so, there's a gas station Burger King where I can pocket big lighters and ask the late-night manager for our old french fries. 
I learned I can carry four large fries in the upturned waist of my jacket and two small fries in each pocket. But really, it's just easier to man up and ask for a couple of to-go bags. The bags also help keep out animals, but in truth, the fries are usually gone by the time I've returned to camp because I can't eat them cold. They leave a starchy film on my tongue. To keep my diet sprite cold at the tree, I've dug a hole in the snow. Unfortunately, the first couple froze, and the only way I could thaw them out was to crotch the cup for an hour or two, leaving my thighs raw and numb. I don't know how much more weather this fountain cup can handle, but I bet I could make a protective layer around it with evergreen needles. Or I could ask Skylar, the late-night manager, for another one since we already have the hour-old fry thing figured out. It feels good to live off the land. I'm one with the elements, a tiny cog in the grand cosmic machinery. To escape the trappings of civilization and your impending conviction for a crime you didn't commit, if only for a few months, well, it's about the most human a man can feel. Happy holidays, everyone. Stay warm. And please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison. We land right on the peak of the slick, snow-covered roof, our however many reindeers stamping their hard, hard hooves on the icy shingles. We all pile out of the sleigh and head for the chimney. It looks pretty narrow. We're going to have to go one after another. If we all try to go down at the same time, we're going to get stuck. That's the one thing we must not do. But of course, we are absent-minded and we forget that we shouldn't all try to go down the chimney at once. So that's what we try to do, and we get hopelessly stuck. It's really bad. Wedged in a chimney. Again. But we are not alone in that chimney. For just below where we're stuck, there are others, roosting in that sooty darkness certainly exasperated that we are now collectively blocking their preferred exit. Sorry about this, we say in unison. We have entered the battery. As the man awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic bat. Well, he couldn't go to work as a bat, which was actually a relief, and his family was delighted once they saw him. In fact, there really wasn't a single way in which the man's life and his family's lives weren't improved by his inexplicable overnight transformation into a gigantic bat. It was like Kafka's metamorphosis, except he turned into a bat instead of a bug, and everyone was happy about it instead of everyone being upset about it. And now you get what I was going for. A villainous group of men tried to start a bat fighting ring. It was like a cock fighting ring except for bats. So they put two bats in a ring and placed bets on which one would kill the other one first. But the bats didn't fight. They wouldn't harm each other. The villainous group of men began to argue about whose stupid idea it was to start a bat-fighting ring in the first place. The arguing grew more intense and then turned into an all-out brawl, on which the bats placed bets and Bat 2 won 50 insects off of Bat 1. One day, some bats returned to their cave to discover that a flood had filled it with water, and since none of them could breathe underwater, that was a big problem. Where were they going to find a new cave on such short notice, especially one as good as this one had always been? 
Then one of them suggested that they hire a young human boy or girl to drink all the water out of the cave. At first, the other bats were stricken dumb by the sheer idiocy of the suggestion, but then they realized that the bat who had suggested it was being ironic, which wasn't helpful, but did help to lighten the mood a little. But then, a little girl just happened to walk by, and the bats, perhaps pushing the joke too far, indicated to her that they wanted her to drink all the water out of their cave. But little did they know that she was one of three little girls in the entire history of the world who was actually capable of doing such a thing. And she pulled a straw out of her pocket and set to work, drinking the water in 10-hour shifts with a half-hour break for lunch. Weeks later, she drank the last drop of water from the cave, gave the bats a nod, and went on her way. And those bats always remembered her. And the thing they remembered the most was how she drank a supernatural amount of water out of their cave over the period of several weeks. A bat went to the mall and sat upon Santa's knee, neither smiling nor crying in the inevitable photograph. She, the bat, did not have a written list of gifts that she desired for Christmas, and when Santa, never believing that he'd get a response, asked the bat what she wanted for Christmas, she just looked around and rustled her wings a little. Santa, or rather the man disguised as Santa, didn't really know what to do next. The bat was holding up the line and making neither a verbal nor written request for gifts. This kind of thing was one of the hazards of the job, but the man playing Santa was still irritated. Maybe if he just gently lifted the bat off of his knees and placed her on the ground? But then all the kids would see him do that, and he didn't know how they'd take it. What if they started crying and saying that the real Santa would never use his hands to grasp a bat, remove it from his knee, and place it gently on the floor? The man playing Santa racked his brain for any story he had ever heard wherein Santa interacted with a bat, even in a brief, minor way, but he couldn't think of a single one. And then it struck him. That was the problem. Stories of Santa interacting with bats didn't exist. He would be the one setting the precedent, establishing the standard by which all future Santas would be judged when it came to bat handling. And so, boldly, the man playing Santa gave the bat a candy cane, which she dropped, patted her on her head, and said, Ho, 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 be good, Merry Christmas. The bat, seemingly satisfied, flew away. But just as the man playing Santa was feeling pleased with himself, the kids standing in line started crying and saying that the real Santa would never speak to a bat as if it were a human child like they were. Then the man playing Santa, overcome with disgust, tore the fake beard from his face, tore the fake hat from his head, tore the dangly jingle bell earrings from his ears, and tore open a bag of chips, which unfortunately he had not yet paid for, and so he was arrested. But the bat got exactly what she wanted for Christmas, unseasonably warm weather. Did you know that bat is an acceptable nickname for someone named Bartholomew? Like Bat Masterson, the Wild West gunfighter and associate of Wyatt Earp and Teddy Roosevelt. And yet, and yet, many numbskulls choose instead to go by Bart, Barth, Bartho, or Lomu. And that's why I'm starting my voluntarily remove the R from your name of Bart campaign. The goal of the campaign is summed up so perfectly in its name that further explanation could only be redundant. So let's instead take this moment to decry the voluntarily insert an R into the word bat as it pertains to baseball campaign. 
Can you imagine what would happen if this campaign were to be successful and every time you went to a baseball game, instead of being constantly reminded of the world's most perfect animal, you were instead forced to endure an entire stadium full of people chanting, Swing that Bart! Or, Hey Mr. Ball, meet Dr. Bart! Or, Wood and Aluminum, Bart's, Bart's, Bart's! You'd feel disappointed, you'd feel like something was missing, and that something would be the lack of an R in the word Bart. Anyway, if you know someone named Bartholomew, it might be a good idea to call them Bat-Olomew. How did we get unstuck last time? Oh yes, now we remember. The reindeer gathered around the chimney and spat down upon us until we all became so slick with reindeer saliva that we were able to slide down the chimney and out of the fireplace into the living room. Well, hopefully we won't have to do that again. Many of us are allergic to reindeer saliva, and even those of us who aren't don't much care to be coated in it. And then we feel it, a pressure building beneath us, pushing up against us. The bats are fed up with us and are combining their efforts to drive us back up and out of the chimney. Individually, they are not physically imposing creatures, but now their pooled strength feels immense. How many of them must be down there to exert this kind of upward force on us? Is it working? We can't tell if we become violently unstuck and blast out of the top of the chimney in a fountain of humanity, scattering in all directions and crashing back down onto the roof and, in some cases, crashing two stories down to the snowy yard. A black column of bats pours upward from the chimney and into the night as we leave the battery. Okay, listeners, this month I got a letter in the mail from our intrepid hermit reporter, Cayman Bird, and it's not what I had been expecting. Uh, as you know, he was originally sending in recordings of interviews he did with hermits, and then lately he's been calling in with some investigation he was doing into some broader hermit behavior. But, well, this is, okay, he sent me this, and I'm just going to read it to you. Dear Adam, I am writing this to update you by flashlight inside an abandoned train car deep in the woods of a large forest somewhere in the United States. It's probably safer if I don't say where exactly. I can't tell if I am genuinely in any danger or not, but there seems to be an awful lot of effort being put into hiding things from someone. Who exactly, I can't tell. I'll update you as quickly as I can, as I am not sure how much time I have. So like I said I would do last time that I was on the podcast, I dived into the archives of the old out-of-all-doors hermitry forums. I spent a lot of time digging around and sorting through arguments about proper measurement of beard length, which nut and berry combinations taste most like hostess snack cakes, how many circles you need before you can take a pine cone, the differences between an eastern chipmunk and a 13-stripe ground squirrel, which side of the tracks is the wrong side, and sightings of the mythical two-legged tabby. But then, I saw some sections that seemed more nonsensical than normal. I started to pull those sections out and compare them to each other when I noticed some things repeating in the gibberish. Now, I don't want to give them too much credit, but it sort of looked like a code or some sort of communication was occurring. It was at this point I decided I needed to run this by an expert. I called the only person I know who has any experience with this sort of thing. My friend, the de... Okay, and this part is all scribbled out a bunch, and there are lines that are pointing off the side of the paper to a piece of torn wrapping paper stapled together with this piece of notebook paper, and it says... 
Well, let's just say he always dresses very nicely. Anyway, he's a guy who I know who can be trusted about these sort of things, and he agreed with me that this was, in fact, a coded communication hidden in the gibberish of the hermit discussions. But he couldn't tell me any more than that. However, he passed me on to someone who could help me at his organization. I can't divulge which organization he works for, but let's just say that they do a brisk trade in information. And this person, after spending some time with the material, told me that I had indeed stumbled onto something big, very big, and that they would send out someone with a special package to help sort this weirdness out. So here I am in this abandoned train car writing you this note as I wait for the package to arrive. I will be in touch as soon as I feel it is safe to do so. Farewell for now. And then there's like, like an owl sort of drawn over his signature. I honestly don't know what to make of this. This sounds sort of, well, Cayman's usually very careful about his sources and he's pretty thorough, so I guess if he sees something is there, we should trust him. But it seems very unlikely that the hermits could really be, I don't know. We just have to wait to hear from him again and hope that he's okay. Uh, Cayman, if you're listening out there, be safe. Watch your back. Hi, Adam. I hope that you get the dating forum turned back on on the website, Out of All Doors, the dating forum. But can you see if any listeners um, want to have a hermit date where we dig a hole in my yard again in the same place I had one before and then build a pile of dirt beside it, but don't um, have to talk while we do that? And if you can find anybody on podcast or something like that, okay. Well, where'd we end up today, Jason? Another planet where Lil Dollop just takes over our segment and we waste another entire month without even mentioning our mission to find the home planet of this strange diary written by some version of Adam Drent from across the multiverse? No, no, I think this Earth will be much more conducive to moving our plot forward. Maybe. Well, I hope you're right. Hey, look over there. It looks like it might be this Earth's Adam Drent. Hey, Adam! Adam! Hey, uh, tell me, would you have a second to help us try to figure out where this diary here might have come from? Uh, but I want to go to Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. Oh, I get it. What is it, Jason? Well, remember how I told you that on the Earth I originated from, every fictional reality is truth? Well, on another Earth, the continuity of Star Wars is true. So you're saying we're in the Star Wars universe? Well, no, not exactly. See, in the infinitude of the multiverse, many versions of the Star Wars universe would be reality. 
In this particular one, it would seem that the general makeup of the Star Wars universe is the basis of the reality, only instead of the characters you might recognize from the film, this world is populated by strange amalgams of those characters mixed with people who at least look and sound like our friends, such as Adam Drent. Adam Drent? Who the is that? My name's Adam Skywalker and I'm a Jedi and you're not so suck it. And it would appear in conjunction with being Star Wars amalgamations, they may also be total Oh boy, here comes another one. He's a, a Wookiee, I guess. But he looks just like you, Jason. Now you can tell because he's covered in fur, but he's he's got the two foot long braided beard thing. He just called you a Okay. Here comes a little robot. I have no idea who that's supposed to be. Bleep, bloop, 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 bloop. And what did he say? How the am I supposed to know? I can never understand that piece of I have a translator unit, actually. Let me try. Just a second while it processes. And here it is. What he said was... Bye, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Of course it did. Hey, here comes Squall. But why is he wearing those buns on the side of his head? Hey, that's Princess Squall to you. Show some respect. Okay, you know what? Let's stop there. I get it. It's, it's Star Wars. A Star Wars movie came out, so let's let's do Star Wars. It's just you know, I have I have presents to wrap. It's not funny. It's not a good parody. It's it's just, it's not funny. What parody? This is our lives you're talking about, man. That's some cold. Oh, you're in for it now. Here comes Lil Vader. You try talking to him, he'll chop your hand off, man. Oh, uh, boy. Jason, I'll be in the portal hopper. Merry Christmas, everyone. Oh, yeah. Little Vader coming at you from the dark side. Here we go. There's a stormtrooper who is always talking shit who's under that mask. Why, it's Brandon Schmidt. Adam Skywalker's always drinking soda, and maybe in this universe, that is Yoda. He sounds like a Muppet, maybe Fozzie or Kermit. Cayman Bird is gonna interview a crazy old hermit. It's Cousin Ben Kenobi, he's a crazy old wizard. Climb inside a Tauntaun if you get stuck in a blizzard. Star Wars is dope, Star Wars is groovy. Here's a fun that happens in the new movie. So you find out that Kylo Ren is related to And Han Solo, oh my god. So he and Rey, the new female character, well she but Luke Skywalker is Lando Harrison is a scoundrel and a traitor. That's the end of my rap, so I'll see you later. Merry Christmas. The ghost bat queen shot first.
And now we have another eerie contribution from the Ghost Bat Queen. The outfit of a day is leaving your childhood home and not being sure when you'll come back. It's practicing deep breathing because you hate flying and the back of the plane feels claustrophobic. It's texting your family during your layover to let them know you're alive and ending every conversation with I love you in case that's the last thing you ever say to them. It's lying on your back in your other home, the one you've made for yourself, and missing the glowing stars on your sailing, the ones you had to jump on your old bed to be able to stick there, and the glowing planets you hung around the room with fishing line. Your room used to feel like outer space when the lights were out, like it was both the most vast and private place you'd ever be. You were alone, but your parents were down the hall, and your sister was right next door, and you were so at ease. You slowly move your leg back until you can feel the warmth of your partner's skin. You are not alone, but you're as alone as you've ever been. But somewhere in Connecticut, down a long driveway, the stars on your ceiling are still glowing, even though there's no one there to see them. We've all had disappointing Christmases this year in terms of gifts, I know that. But why just try to make the best of it and tolerate your bad gifts when you could instead return them all and use the refunded money to start, bolster, or complete your collection of Gentleman's Mills Snow Chums figurines? Gentleman's Mills has added many exciting new members to the Snow Chums family this year, and remember, Gentleman's Mills Snow Chums figurines are all made of real snow. Check out these highlights from the new 2016 line. Number one, Snow Mange. This snowman is covered in awful mange that pokes through the dirty slush used to construct this poor man's snowman. Never have you seen such a down-on-your-luck snowman. Puts even the most pitying underdog supporters to the test. Package comes soaked in the smell of rain-soaked town. The very smell of failure and disaster. This is Snow Mange. Number two, Total Recall Snowman Edition. We've taken three Total Recall DVDs and painted them white, glued them together, and then added puffy eyes and buttons. You'd better enjoy this snowman. You'll have to enjoy it with the knowledge that you've ruined not one, not two, but three Total Recall DVDs to create such a treat. A truly guilty pleasure. Number three, Snow Mangle. This snowman is bent back to a low angle, as if debating whether or not he's supposed to make a snow angel. While his master only writes in typos, it's surprising how often these gray areas still come up, even knowing that. Number four, Toothy Snow Giant. This white Stonehenge of sorts consists of a circle of white snow piles representing the Toothy Snow Giant rising from the earth, teeth first. Number five, Snow Angeler. This snowman makes snow angels. Number six, Edward Snowdman. He told some white lies to the slushmans. Number seven, Snowman Dunk Tank. 
Most folks yak when the softball hits the target and the snowman falls into the boiling water, but something dark doesn't let them look away. Number eight, muscle-bound snowman. This supplement pit of a snowman ripples in the beach air while gawkers snap photos fit for a snowmanatomy textbook. Number nine, bullied pale kid. The dandy has likened this twerp to a snowman for his 27th season. Number 10, white on rice. This snowman, Dr. Jerry S. White, provides a gripping and thought-provoking commentary on Condoleezza Rice's little-known tough choices made while providing AIDS support to Africa. Number 11, Stunt Your Snowthman. This chilly stuntman can be rigged up with you for a tandem skydive, guaranteeing you'll land cold, soaked, and with a bitter face. Number 12, Snowmon. This Jamaican snowman featuring dreadlocks, colorful hat, and Rastafarian temperament is continually melting due to the tropical climate. Number 13, Snow Buddy Home. This menacing guard snowman mows down intruders with a machine gun while you're off at vacation. Motion detector includes a complimentary battery backup. Notice, aim becomes degraded. Number 14, Mr. Popular's Snow Companion. Are you tired of disdainful gazes or outright getting picked on for being lonely in public? Not anymore. Mr. Popular's snow companion is delivered in professionally arranged fashion attire atop a versatile wagon. Welcome to the cool table. Number 15, Pulmonary Snowman. Teaches kids and medical students the gross truth about lungs. Number 16, Cold Sober. This non-drinker gets behind the wheel and starts you on your way home from the bars. Be sure you are in a condition to tend to his snowy needs before you reach over from the passenger seat to help him turn the key. Number 17, Snowmourn. Place this snowman on the graveside of your favorite loved one. It's slow or fast melting, season depending will provide a visual metaphor of your own sadness. Number 18, Snow Mud Man. This man is mostly made of compacted mud, sticks, mulch, and loam, only marginally covered with a thin veneer of snow. Number 19, life-size snow Russian nesting doll. The hat began creating this full of pride and ambition, but was left maddened by the impossible task, with sketches and plans obviously modified after the fact to match his all-too-likely finished product. Number 20, food choice. This snowman hides your children's favorite foods within its head, stomach, and bowels. When Junior asks where dinner is, tell him it's being especially refrigerated in Frosty, and it's your child's choice whether he wants to eviscerate Frosty to access his dinder, or keep Frosty intact and go hernge. Number 21, two bulbs treat, one bulb bile. One of these snow cone scoops is going to come right back up. The tastiest scoop also contains a silver dollar. Number 22, cross-dressing snowman slash woman. This extremely controversial snowman can be accessorized with either a male or female scarf. Number 23, court ordered Cory. Cory, a two month old snowman, smooth things out. Hey, why don't we just cool off for a bit? I know we don't agree yet, but we can still chill. And you think you're ice cold for committing those crimes? Corey always, and I mean always, gets shot. Number 24, Groom Dodger. This pulseless ice queen has been subbing in to aid jiltings for a fortnight. Number 25, Yves Le Ice Cream Man. Yes, he is French, and yes, he delivers ice cream, but there's absolutely no denying that the man is riddled with lice. 
Number 26, Yellow Snowman. This jolly winter butler is a welcome voice to get on the line. Yellow, how can I help you? Only downside, you might get too many callers if there is such a thing. Number 27, Snow Belower. No human dare fetch the frisbee, it's clearly not worth it. But give Snow Belower even the least impassioned pump-up speech, place him in the bucket, and down the well he goes. Number 28, it's a no, man. This cheerful friend-like snowman goes to your inquisitors to soften the bad news of a no. Rejecting someone's engagement? It's a no, man. Telling someone their grant proposal wasn't accepted? It's a no, man. Telling family members whether great-grandpappy made it through surgery or not? It's a no, man. Number 29, the unmeltable. Your vile, destructive children can try anything they can to melt this snowman, including blowing him with a blow dryer, putting him under a heat lamp, breathing warm breath on him, even lighting him a fire. But this snowman shan't melt, for Eames made of none other than frosted glass. Your brood will finally be defeated until they bring out the hammers. Number 30, Sentient Snow Being. This snowman seemed kind of sentient, but only in an early real-time strategy CPU player sense. He built a massive snow army, as did the neighbor's snowman, and went through the chore of building snow farms and mines to supply his snowy war machine. Was it this grim objective that gave him his sense of purpose, or did his combat effort replace the contribution he was truly meant for? The battle was no Normandy, but would we still remember him if he were a painter? Number 31, Snowbot. This snowman's stick arms are bent at 90 degree angles as if he were dancing the popular The Robot, the dance move. Nothing else about this snowbot is robot-like. Number 32, Snowman with head reversed, mixed media, 1988, Klaus Pfaffenborg. This immaculate modern sculpture has been praised for its ability to upset all expectation in the modern viewer, taking a common image from childhood playtime and making it a truly macabre spectacle, calling into question what is and isn't true Americana. A startling and necessary sculpture from a modern master, not for purchase. Number 33, the gentlest disciplineur. The Dean's got a special one up his sleeve with this one. When your best student breaks a relic rule in the most marginal and innocent way, clothe the student in your warmest garb and position him under the gentlest disciplineur. As the snowman melts, a styrofoam paddle gently drifts buttward, slowing upon meeting the padded snow pants and ultimately coming to a rest to complete the spank so tender it's nearly a compliment. Number 34, Jock Frost. This Christmas time rude boy not only gives the coldest feeling deep in your bones, he also belittles your athletic ability, or lack thereof. Number 35, Moral Executioner Snowman. To sidestep any moral or spiritual consequences of misapplying the death penalty, Gentleman's Mills co-founders help you play it safe via the Moral Executioner Snowman. After the trial, simply tell any human executioner to go home for the day, appropriately position the convicted, and watch as the moral executioner snowman kills the defendant's proxy snowman, which is controversial to no moral code to which we are privy. Number 36, Snowmanster Action Snowman. Sponsored by the Winter Olympics, this action figure snowman is more than capable of skiing, snowboarding, and luging. Watch him as he zooms down and chart his progress via the provided stopwatch. Construct Snowmanster Action Snowman's elaborate playsets before Snowman melts away to drips. 
Number 37, Winter Responders Practice Snowman. This $1,400 practice set comes with hyper-realistic snowman, pre-buried in avalanche-grade snow. Meet our delivery driver upon arrival, or else you get it wherever you get it. Don't have your first try be with a human victim which doesn't last as long. Number 38, Snow, Indeterminate. This very blurry photograph features what may be in the right lighting a snowman, we think. Number 39, Helpful Snow Crew. This 20 snowman collection can be positioned in work sites, in doorways, at the bottoms of ladders, in electrical hoist baskets, in front of fire trucks, or drop down manholes to their human work counterparts. With some hard and speedy work on your part, you can even fit the whole crew in the highway department's snow plow cab to get ready for tonight's big blizzard. And number 40, Waste of Brains, Snowman Edition. Well, NASA found a way to make snowmen grow real hair. Add that to the list of stupid improvements that keep our brightest minds away from something anyone cares about. And now, again be welcome to the Campfire of Chills. If you have a frightening story for the Campfire of Chills, send it to outofalldoors at gmail.com. But tonight, our chilling tale for the Campfire of Chills comes from a listener named Clarence. He writes, I used to hate Christmas, but then the strangest thing happened to me this year. The ghost of my dead business partner came to me and told me that when I went to bed, I'd be visited by three ghosts. Sure enough, when I went to bed, I was visited by three ghosts. The first was the ghost of Christmas past, and he showed me a scene from my past where I was enjoying Christmas. Then the ghost of Christmas present came, and he showed me a scene from the present, more or less, where one of my employees was having a bad Christmas because I don't treat him well, I guess. Then the ghost of Christmas future came, and he showed me my own funeral, and there weren't many people there, and no one really seemed that sad that I was gone, which was depressing. So I asked that ghost, the last one, how I could avoid that, but he said it was too late, so that was disappointing. But then I woke up and I hadn't missed Christmas. It was Christmas morning and I was a changed man. I felt like now I got what Christmas was about and I liked it. And it was all thanks to those three ghosts, so I went downstairs and opened my presents and listened to some Christmas music and I was like, hey, yeah, I'm actually enjoying this. And then I went over to my employee's house, the one from that part with the ghost of Christmas present. And I gave him a cash Christmas bonus and he seemed pretty surprised, so that felt good. Well, that night as I was getting ready for bed, the ghost of my dead business partner showed up again and said that when I went to bed, I was going to be visited by four ghosts. And I asked if any of them were going to be the same ghosts, and I also asked why any ghosts were coming since I'd already learned my lesson and Christmas was over and everything. But he just faded from view with a sort of moan sound. So I went to bed, and sure enough, I got visited by four ghosts. The first three were exactly the same as the previous night, and they showed me exactly the same stuff. And I kept saying, you already showed me this stuff last night. The ghost of Christmas past didn't acknowledge me whenever I said stuff like that. The ghost of Christmas present at least looked a little embarrassed. And the ghost of Christmas future couldn't have cared less. Then the fourth ghost showed up. It was the ghost of Christmas yesterday. He just showed me a few scenes from the previous day's Christmas. I was like, yeah, I know, I just did that. You should be showing this to the other guys. But he just seemed confused. Well, the next night, I was getting ready for bed, and the ghost of my dead business partner showed up and told me that I would be visited by six ghosts. Six! 
I tried to grab him before he faded, but it was no use. It took me a long time to fall asleep because I was so irritated. But once I did, it was the whole same rigmarole again with the first three, and they wouldn't listen to my complaints, so I just gave up. Then the ghost of Christmas yesterday showed up, and I kind of lost it because his name wasn't even accurate anymore. The Christmas he was showing me was from two days ago, and I just wouldn't let that go. So he kind of rushed through the inn and kept having to raise his voice to talk over me. Then the next ghost showed up, and she also claimed to be the ghost of Christmas past, but when she showed me the scene from a Christmas from my past, it wasn't even me in the scene. It was some other guy who looked nothing like me. I kept telling the stupid ghost to look at him and look at me and then tell me she was showing me a scene from a Christmas from my past, but she wouldn't do it. And then the sixth ghost took over, and he was, get this, the ghost of Christmas shopping. He just showed me a bunch of scenes of people shopping for Christmas presents. And I was like, what does this have to do with me? But he was as unhelpful as the rest of them. Well, the next night, the ghost of my dead business partner showed up and told me I was going to be visited by 14 ghosts. So the number more than doubled in one night. I tried to stay awake as long as I could, but it had been an exhausting day at work, so I eventually fell asleep. And sure enough, ghosts started showing up right away. The only good part was that neither of the ghosts of Christmas past showed up at all. But present and future were still there, as was the ghost of Christmas yesterday, who had at least had the decency to change his name to the ghost of Christmas three days ago, although he still showed me all the same scenes, so the name change was small consolation. And that hack ghost of Christmas shopping made another appearance, which I assumed would again be the low point of the night, but I was sadly mistaken, because the new ghosts were all as bad or worse, like the ghost of Christmas carols, who wasn't even a good singer, and the ghost of Christmas cookies, who couldn't be bothered to actually bring cookies. And then there was the ghost of Christmas beaches, who showed me several scenes of beaches around the world, but nothing about them suggested Christmas in any way, and there was no way to verify that I was actually seeing scenes of the beaches from Christmas. Those scenes could have been from any day of the year. Then came the ghost of Major John Garthley, who I gather from the uniform and all the shouting died in some war, but the point is, there wasn't even a suggestion of a connection to Christmas. This new ghost wasn't even trying. Although to be fair, it was three days past Christmas, so I guess you could say that the ghost of Major John Garthley had it more right than most of the others. Certainly more right than the ghost of Christmas Easter. I've actually forgotten some of the other ghosts, but the last one was truly terrifying. He was the ghost of Christmas ghosts, and he showed me a vast chamber, so vast that I could see neither its walls nor its ceiling, yet somehow I knew I was indoors, and this chamber was filled with ghosts. Spirit, I cried, are all these ghosts really Christmas ghosts? He nodded solemnly. I shouted again, they won't all come visit me, will they? Will they? The ghost said nothing. Spirit, I wailed, falling to my knees. I have a life. I have other things to do. There isn't enough time in a night for me to endure pointless visits from all these ghosts. And then, from deep within his dark hood, the ghost of Christmas ghosts began to make a strange sound. What was that sound? And then I woke up at home in my bed. It was already almost noon, and I was very late for work. But instead of rushing out the door, I sat down at my desk and began to write you this account. And even now as I write it, I realize what the sound I heard the ghost of Christmas ghosts making was. He was chewing gum. So no, I no longer hate Christmas. Christmas is the least of my worries. And we also, as an added bonus, have a, another recorded Campfire of Chills segment from previous Campfire of Chills contributor, Smoke Sinister. Up in the tree. 
I lug buckets full of snow, both imagined and real. I build snow forts, both imagined and real. Snowballs to boot, both imagined and real. I see my foes coming, both foes imagined and, and real foes. They're carrying snowballs of their own. These snowballs are both imagined and real. We have battles, both imagined and real, and I win victories, both imagined and real. These victories go to my head, and I get a huge ego. I overstate and overestimate both my abilities and how much they appeal to others as their potential leader. I become the leader nonetheless. This we know for certain, and it can't be denied, or else my snowy servants will place those questioning underneath snow, both man-made and natural. Close your eyes, lie down, relax, don't think about anything irritating, not even that irritating thing you always think about. You know the one I'm talking about, don't pretend you don't. Put your hands, feet, arms, neck, and the rest of your body into the officially recognized relaxed position, and think about the word relax, written out in blue crayon bubble letters on a sheet of cream-colored lined stationery. If you're illiterate, and just trust me when I tell you that those odd blue crayon markings spell out the word relax. You are skiing down the side of a huge, beautiful mountain. Your balance is perfect. Your handcrafted coats and stuff are cutting the wind as advertised. And as you cut back and forth across the face of the mountain in the fluffiest, whitest powder humankind has ever known, you waggle your ski poles above your head in what an observer may correctly identify as jubilation or may incorrectly identify as distress, depending on how long said observer has been in the observing game and how much inborn talent for observing he or she had to start with. You cut right, then left, then right again. You want to shout something that ends with a long ooh sound, but what consonant should the sound begin with? B, L, M, might I suggest W? You nod, smile and uncork the queen of all woos as you whiz down the mountain, zipping in and out among the massive pines, not crashing into their trunks, avoiding their trunks entirely, in fact, per the advice of every ski instructor you've ever known, even the ones you didn't like, even the ones who couldn't ski, even the ones who advocated skiing off of cliffs advised you not to ski into tree trunks. Onward you ski, onward and downward, farther from the top, closer to the bottom, tugged ever forward by gravity's insistent pluckings, your heart singing like a choir boy with two mouths, one of them prepubescent, one of them postpubescent, both mouths harmonizing with each other, while the boy sneaks a cigarette with a third mouth that no one knows about, not even his pediatrician. Ahead of you on the slope, you see another tree trunk, 
which wouldn't stand out to you except that this one is lying down horizontally across the slope. It looks as if someone chopped it down and then decided to just leave it there. Or maybe they didn't decide, maybe someone else decided for them. We don't know how much agency the chopper has in his or her own affairs, but regardless, the fallen tree is in your way and you're going to need to either stop short of it, jump over it, briefly become immaterial and pass through it, briefly make it become immaterial and pass through it, or hope that someone digs a tunnel beneath it in time for you to ski under it, swerving way out and around it on either side would also be an option, and I suppose if we're hoping someone might build a tunnel under it in the next few seconds, we could also hope for some kind of overpass, or snowverpass, which would be made out of hard-packed snow and would allow you to ski right over the top of the fallen tree without having to jump at all. Or perhaps someone could show up with a chainsaw and cut a portion out of the middle of the fallen tree so you could ski straight through the gap. Or the fallen tree could be struck by an experimental weapon and reduced to ash. Really, when you think about how many ways an obstacle can conceivably cease to be an obstacle, it has already ceased to be an obstacle, like this fallen tree, which turned out to be made of frosting or something, I don't know, you ate your way through it without slowing down. Once an obstacle has ceased to be an obstacle, it's boring to spend too much time thinking about the specific details of how and why it got overcome, because who cares how and why you overcome something that isn't even an obstacle? Ski on! You hear a rumble behind you, you feel it rumbling up through your skis and ski boots, and you're like, that better not be an avalanche, so you look back over your shoulder and it's not an avalanche. So you ski on, enjoying the skiing immensely, until again you hear a rumble, this time louder, and you feel the mountainside quaking beneath you and you think, what in the world is that, an avalanche? And it better not be. You look over your shoulder and again, no avalanche at all. Well, whatever, that's good. Your skiing continues unabated until you see a man standing along the side of the ski run, pointing behind you. Uh-oh, he shouts at you. Looks like there's an avalanche coming behind you. You turn to look over your shoulder, and what you see behind you could not possibly be less of an avalanche. Less than 30 seconds of skiing later, something taps you on the shoulder. You turn to look, and it's an avalanche right on your heels, threatening to engulf you at any moment. Just as you're about to no longer feel relaxed, you see an enormous ramp ahead of you. This entire ski run was actually leading to that ramp. You're participating in a huge ski jump competition. You hit the ramp hard at top speed. You zoom up the ramp, the lip of the ramp, rushing towards you, and then you run out of ramp. You launch off of the end, and you are airborne, flying skyward, leaving that creepy avalanche behind to devour the ramp as you sail through the crisp winter night air, still rising, still gaining altitude, and your skis fall off of your feet and tumble down, spinning and twirling back to earth, and then your ski boots fall away too. You feel yourself closing the gap between yourself and the stars. Your coats fall away. In fact, all your garments fall away. You soar into the night sky like if a meteor flew up instead of what science tells us they do, which is fly down. And if that same meteor left a trail of ski clothes behind it instead of what science tells us meteors actually leave a trail of behind them, which is visible stench. And still you fly upward, and now your hair falls out, even your body hair. And you look around for a place to buy a tonic to prevent hair loss, but you're in space, and it's too late anyway, because all your hair is already gone. And now your skin is gone too, and so are your muscles, nerves, bones, all that stuff. You don't have a body anymore. You blow right past the stars. There are no stars this far out. It's only blackness, then grayness, then whiteness. 
Then it's like you're flying through gravy. Then it's like you're flying through, I'm gonna be honest, sewage. But then it's like you're flying through a hot post-sewage shower of cleansing acid, which is fine because you don't have a body anymore. And then you find yourself back at the top of the mountain, and your skis are back, and your coats are back, your poles are back, all your stuff is back, and you're zooming down the slope at top speed, not cutting back and forth, just straight down the slope like the saint on a snowboard at Swiss Valley in Michigan at age 14, right before he broke his collarbone. No turning whatsoever. And what is that you see ahead of you rumbling down the mountain? Why, it's that same avalanche. You must have traveled back in time. But this time, you've got the upper hand. The avalanche has no idea you're coming. No idea at all, and you're closing on it so fast. Trees are falling in your way, but you're exploding right through them in a shower of splinters and wood pulp. And the avalanche is oblivious. It's making so much racket, it wouldn't hear you coming, even if you unleashed one of your trademark woos. So you do, you hit that woo, and you hold it, you sustain it, and the avalanche does hear you at the last possible second. It turns just in time to see you unhinge your jaw, your teeth still stained with the frosting of that fallen tree from earlier, and the avalanche tries to shriek, but it's far too late for that now. It's already over. It's done. And as you turn your skis sideways and skid to a halt in a spray of perfect powder, you return to your real life, here with the rest of us in this very real world. But as you do, make sure to bring the peace of Out of All Doors with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 16th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Casey By, Steve Tartaglione, Andy Poppenfoos, Ben Bird, Cayman Bird, KT McVeigh, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. Thanks to Casey By and JJ Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 17 of Out of All Doors. 